Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Medical Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. And I'm Dr. Philip Chan. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Chan, always enjoy getting together with you. I have to say that this is the highlight of my week this week. Um, one, it's fun to chat with you, but it's going to be fun to chat today with our guest today, Dr. Megan Rainey. Um, and Dr. Rainey and I have never met in this state before. It's a small state, so it is kind of odd that we've never met. Yet our paths have crossed during the pandemic. Um, so it's fun to have you, Dr. Rainey. Dr. Rainey, welcome to Public Health Out Loud. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. One of these days we'll become 3D friends as well as just seeing each other on a screen, Jim. <laughs> well, I like that. That's really fun being 3D friends. Um, because really, that's so much of the pandemic to me has been I have a lot of these 2D friends. It's mm-hmm. funny over the pandemic, there's so many people I've known for over a year. They're just digital friends and not real. But why don't we start with this, Dr. Rainey? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, like who you are a little bit and what you do? Sure. So I am first and foremost an emergency physician. Um, I practice at Rhode Island Hospital and the Miriam Hospital and have been here in Rhode Island since 2004. I'm also a public health practitioner and researcher. Uh, I run our Center for Digital Health out of Brown and Lifespan, where we develop technology-based solutions to common health and public health problems. And I am an associate dean at the School of Public Health here at Brown. Um, Traditionally, pre-COVID, most of my work was around uh, injury prevention, violence, and mental health, with a little smattering of all the other stuff that we do in the ER. Um, But since COVID-19 hit our state, I've used a lot of the both technology-based skill sets and behavior change skill sets that I've built up over the prior 15 years to help us address COVID both locally uh, and nationally and internationally. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Randy, so much for joining us. Uh, I know that we go way back. I've known you for a while here. Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We did grow up a little bit uh, together here in Rhode Island. I uh, came to Rhode Island in 2006 as well in infectious diseases. But tell the listeners a little bit about what it's been like as an emergency medicine physician. You have been on the front lines during the COVID pandemic. What's it been like? Where are we now? Oh, it has been a series of ups and downs. Um, I was actually in the emergency department um, the night that the very first identified COVID patient in our state came in. Um, And obviously that story has been covered extensively through the media, which is why I can talk about it a little bit. But I remember the feeling that night um, of knowing that it had finally hit us here in Rhode Island. We'd been prepped and ready in our emergency department, in our hospitals for weeks at that point. Um, but that was that was the moment of knowing it was really here. Uh, and then the next months were were frustrating and horrifying and scary. We knew so little about this disease. Our patients were terrified, our care providers were terrified, and the staff were scared as well. You know, watching the housekeepers um, have to go in and clean the rooms after a COVID patient had been in there was something that has never left me. Last summer, we thought it was getting better, and then it got worse, and then it got better, and then it's gotten worse. And I will say that the past few months, in some ways, have been the toughest part of the pandemic because everyone's just so tired of it. And everybody's so angry, whether it's about the pandemic, whether it's about delays in care for other reasons and the overcrowding of the hospitals across our state and really across the nation. Um, This has been really hard on doctors and nurses and social workers and everyone else who's part of our emergency department um, care team. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you speak of so many issues there that are so relevant to the pandemic. Let me just ask you a more personal question about just working in an emergency department and wearing an N95 mask with a surgical mask over it. Like, quite frankly, I do that when I'm seeing patients. You know, it's, it's interesting. In the beginning, it was like, you know, keep in mind, I, I had never worked a full day wearing an N95 and a surgical mask before. And it was like, gosh, this is hot. It gets old. But I kind of got used to it. Now it's kind of one of those things where it's like, I just live with it. It just isn't a big thing for me anymore. But how are you with that? How'd you get used to it? And, and is it something that still bothers you to this day? It is certainly different. Um, wearing an N95 with a surgical mask over it, never mind the days that I had to spend entirely gowned and gloved because I was working in one of our COVID pods. It was hot and tiring. You couldn't stop and take a drink or a snack. Can't hear people as well. I think a lot of us realized we might have some partial hearing loss when we couldn't read people's lips anymore. Um, but, but you're right. It has become second nature now. Uh, none of us question the need for masks. We all wear N95s constantly in the ED at this point, along with some sort of eye protection and a surgical mask um, over the top. I think the really big transition has been, in addition to getting used to it, finally feeling confident that we have enough. At the beginning of the pandemic, we were having to adjust to a new way of interacting with patients. We were also constantly afraid that because of the constant reuse that we were doing, that our protection would fail. And I will say at this point, at last, through the combination of vaccinations and adequate PPE, I feel confident when I'm in a room with a patient that I'm not going to get infected. One thing that really drives it home for physicians, and maybe if you have any stories you could share with the, the listeners here, but I think one thing that always stands out in my mind over time uh, are specific stories of patients that really describe the pandemic or, you know, my career has been HIV or STIs. Uh, in the last couple of years now, it's hard to believe we're almost two years in this pandemic, but in the last couple of years, are there any specific stories that you have of patients that you've seen uh, that have really driven home uh, sort of the severity, the, the significance of what we're going through now? I have countless stories, Phil, you know, and I hold them in this little part of myself that I don't often let myself think about. You know, again, without violating any protected health information, I, I, I do have some folks from kind of each stage. You know, early on, I took care of another healthcare provider uh, who had gotten sick um, working at a different hospital system who had asthma and who was so scared. And it was so early in the pandemic, we didn't even know whether or not to give steroids. We didn't know who to keep in the hospital and who not to. We barely had testing. And that intense fear that both my patient and I felt in that moment of interaction is something I will never forget. I also have stories about folks who are about my age or even younger many of them with no pre-existing health conditions who came in through our critical care rooms. Um, again, without violating any patient privacy, which is something I hold sacred, those cases were really tough to take care of young parents who happened to have been infected, who knows where, from their family, from their job, um, and ended up intubated or being sent to the ICU, my knowing what they were heading towards um, the potential of death, and if they avoided that, long-term health consequences were certain, um, was really tough. These were people no different from any of us. And then more recently, you know, I've had a couple of cases of folks um, for whom there's no reason that they shouldn't have gotten a vaccine, 
but yet they hadn't. And watching that cycle of infection and fear propagate again at this point um, is is difficult in a different way. You know, I've, I've taken care of a couple of elderly folks. They and or their family members had made the choice to not get a vaccine. Um, and, you know, they ended up getting hospitalized and some of them ended up passing. And um, makes me really sad as someone who believes both in the acute treatment, but also the prevention of disease. Um, again, that, that, that fear is still that, present. That's hard. I mean, I think, mm -hmm. I think that's hard. I, I think your last story in particular is so hard. One of the things I'm just thinking about, Dr. Rainey, is like I've attended the death of patients over my 31-year career. And it's always a sacred experience when a patient passes away. But one of the things that's always been true is that patients I've known, and I could always look at them when, in a straight in the face and say, look, we did everything we could do. And that was comfort to parents. It really was that we, it was, we did everything we could do. The thing about someone passing when they haven't been vaccinated is you really can't say that. We did everything we could as healthcare providers, but you didn't do this. And that's hard for people to live with is quite frankly, I think it's hard to live with not knowing you did the main thing you can to prevent this disease. I, I think that's true. I, I also try hard to not pass judgment. You yeah, know, people important. have their own reasons for getting vaccinated or not. And obviously, if I and you and Phil uh, had our druthers, everyone would have gotten vaccinated. But our job is to take care of people regardless of what choices they've made and to make it maybe a little easier for those around them to make a yeah. safer choice. And, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to shift a little bit to a conversation about treatment a little bit, because it's interesting, like when you talk about the beginning of the pandemic, it was amazing how powerless we were. We had tools, you know, we could put people on breathing machines, we could give people oxygen, IV fluids, a lot of supportive care, but we didn't have a lot of treatment. But one of the things that's been intriguing for me is just watching how treatment has changed so much over the last, quite frankly, 20 months. Like I've never seen anything like this happen in medicine where there's so many treatment options now. It's, it's great to see it. And there's more coming. Um, it's a great time to be in medicine, a great time to be in science. But like, what's it been like for you as an emergency department physician watching the world of treatment change so much for you? Yeah. So as all three of us know, in medicine, we rely on expertise and being handed a disease entity that we knew nothing about. We knew nothing about um, who was susceptible. We knew very little about how it spread or how to prevent it. We, we were doing our best guesses. And then worse, we knew nothing about what to do about it was really challenging. Um, trying to stay up to date on the latest data and best practice, it felt like it changed hour by hour, if not day by day. And I remember early on sitting in our COVID pods in the emergency department, having these discussions with my co-providers about, you know, are we giving antibiotics for COVID pneumonia or not? What do you do if you have someone who has asthma and has steroids? And there were no answers. So we took our best guesses. I will say it was super cool though, to watch our scientific and medical community come together in real time on Twitter, on Facebook, through WhatsApp, watching those updates from the Infectious Disease Society of America slowly accumulate, our up-to-date pages change. So that by the time we got through mid-April, May of 2020, we had a pretty decent idea of what we were dealing with. And I feel like over the last year, our treatments have changed only a little bit once we got through those first three months. It was exhilarating to get to be part of creating that knowledge, although I wish we could have had it earlier for some of those earlier patients. 
But Jim, what was more impressive to me was watching the speed with which we developed not just knowledge around treatments, but also knowledge around testing and prevention. The other memory that sticks with me from early in that pandemic was taking care of patient after patient who I was sure had COVID, but we had no tests. And if we did want to test them, we had to fill out that paper form that got oh, sent gosh. to you guys at the Department I remember of that Health. Form. Yeah, we had mm-hmm. a PUI form. That's right. Yep. And, and, and judging who was high enough risk to get tested, that was even, or I would say was just as difficult for me as not having treatments was not being able to tell patients what they had. And yeah. so I am just so appreciative of our ample testing at this point and what a difference it makes in terms of my ability to treat and in terms of patients' ability to take care of themselves and their family. Yeah, you underscore a lot of the awkwardness of the beginning of the pandemic that's quite frankly forgotten. You know, one in the beginning, beginning, one had to get permission to get a test done which is, you know, we, and I remember we had such limited resources. We were really, we were begged borrowing and we didn't steal resources. Um, we, we definitely were doing what we could um, to find testing resources. It was really a challenge there. Yeah, I was just uh, reflecting upon this. I mean, uh, it does feel like we've sort of been addressing this pandemic, right, with two hands tied behind our back, not just, you know, the PPE, the testing, we had neither, you know, we are in a better place, certainly, but uh, with these ups and downs, it's interesting to watch the supply chains, uh, which they, they're they sort of, you know, a month, uh, you know, adjusting to a month response, right, where, you know, cases peak and all of a sudden we have, you know, low supplies because it was, uh, you know, a low point a month ago, but uh, hopefully we'll all catch up here. But Dr. Rand, let me ask you this, just, you know, we've received some questions and certainly this has been a hot topic in the media related to treatment is this whole thing about ivermectin and, uh, and whatnot. I mean, have you, have you had patients request ivermectin of you and what are your thoughts on this whole ivermectin thing in general? So the data on ivermectin, I always enter with an open mind, right? We've had plenty of things that we thought may or might not work that have been proven in ways that surprise us. You know, there are things out there that we were all convinced were going to make a difference that didn't. There are things that none of us thought were going to make a difference that did. So, you know, my baseline is to take an open mind, but also to wait for the data. Where I protest is when people are pushing unproven cures that do have side effects without there being data that they make a difference. If it's harmless, try it. But things like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, right, have real harms. And we needed to see the same way that we did for the vaccines to make sure that they worked before we start giving them to people. I have had a couple patients ask me about ivermectin. As you know, I'm quite active on social media. So I'm very aware of a lot of the you know, stories that are out there, the hope that has been created around this medication, it is a great medication for people with parasites or people with scabies, but the data shows very clearly that it makes no difference in COVID. We do have treatments that work. And what makes me the most sad is when people avoid those treatments that work or take doses of ivermectin that cause harm. Uh, and therefore get worse. And so I urge folks to seek out, and I do this when I meet with patients one-on-one in the emergency department, to seek out and to be open to reliable sources of information. I understand the desire for hope and for a quick fix. Unfortunately, ivermectin is not one of those. Mm, I think you really bring up a really important point. And I think, you know, one of the things I think about is we have safe, proven treatments for COVID. We have monoclonal antibodies, you know, our state in particular has been really successful at just deploying these intravenous treatments. It's been great. And it, but it's sad when people forego what's a proven treatment for something that's 
skeptical and, and disproven, quite frankly, and then has an adverse outcome that could have been prevented. But I really think you're addressing a larger issue we're seeing in our culture, not just with the pandemic, but in our culture is just misinformation and, quite frankly, something a little bit different, which is disinformation. And I, you know, I've been a little bit stunned myself during the pandemic about how much misinformation and disinformation is out there. Actually, my daughter was talking to me about it's an infodemic um, about this spread of misinformation. I'm just curious, like, how has that affected you? You know, what have you seen and, and how have you responded to it? It's affected me personally, professionally, and certainly in the emergency department as well. Um, you know, we're all exposed to it. Uh, there are studies that show that 80% of us have seen at least one piece of mis or disinformation around COVID-19. I actually think that's probably an underestimate, or maybe that other 20% are people that are never on social media. These myths and frank lies are out there. The trouble becomes when it is human nature to believe things that confirm your pre-existing worldview. And so we have a lot of folks that have seen or read this misinformation or disinformation and don't quite know how to sort out truth from fact and then get led down a path that causes them, their family, and their larger community harm. So I've spent a lot of time over the last six to nine months um, working on trying to combat some of this mis and disinformation. Uh, a lot of that work has been with local communities, either here in Rhode Island or nationally, to try to provide trusted sources of information from people within that community who are already um, kind of part of, part of the fabric um, of, of discussion. Uh, some of the work has been done online, on Twitter, through my news media appearances, trying to break down the facts in ways that are comprehensible and that combat some of these lies that are out there. Um, and then we're, of course, doing a lot of work at the School of Public Health um, around developing uh, better strategies um, for how to get out ahead of this mis- and disinformation. And one really important point that I think gets lost a lot of the time is that these streams of disinformation in particular are being driven by people who have an ulterior motive. Um, they are folks who are generally making a lot of money off of selling ivermectin and kind of quack cures directly to consumers. And people may spread those lies unintentionally, but where it starts, if you look at, you know, the Alex Jones verdict today around Infowars and him saying that Sandy Hook was a hoax, same thing. He did that to make money, to get people to his site and, and to buy his merchandise and his quack cures, which are also out there for COVID. And, and I think that that kind of perspective uh, can sometimes be helpful, but at the end of the day, it comes up down to being exposed to facts and having them come from people you trust, which is something we've been trying to do a lot of work on. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Randy, for that. And one thing I want to just circle back to that you touched on are some of the initiatives right here in our state, uh, Brown University School of Public Health. I know that you, uh, we are involved in some initiatives related to long COVID. Tell us about long COVID, maybe for the general listener, what it is. I know that people probably heard bits of it on, uh, on media, but what is long COVID and, and what are you doing to help address this at the, at the School of Public Health here? So long COVID is a syndrome that's still kind of poorly defined, partly because COVID itself is so new. Um, but it's the idea that there are some people develop symptoms or problems after having COVID that last for months and maybe longer. Some of those are things like loss of taste and smell, things that happen during the acute phase. Some of those longstanding symptoms are things like 
brain fog or fatigue, anxiety, some psychiatric symptoms have been associated with COVID and long COVID. And some of those symptoms are things that are related to real damage to your organs, your lungs, your heart, your kidney, that last again for months, if not years after a COVID infection. There are so many things we don't know about this disease entity, but we know that it's real. And so the driver for long COVID um, was uh, discussions between us and the Hassenfeld Family Foundation about the importance of really getting real info out about what long COVID is, how to treat it, how to prevent it, and how workplaces, employers, and insurers should think about how to manage it. You know, the reality is we've had millions upon millions of Americans who have caught and recovered from COVID, a significant proportion of them, somewhere between five and 40%, depending on what study you read, are gonna be experiencing long COVID symptoms. And we need to help those folks manage it. And we need to help them manage it with facts rather than with those myths and misinformation, those folks that sell people, you know, hundreds of dollars worth of vitamin supplements that might help, but gosh, spend your money on something that we know helps. And so that's really the point of our work is to help create consensus, help do a better job of defining what this is and who gets it. And then throughout to take an equity lens because the people that have been calling the most attention to long COVID up until now are people like me, honestly, middle-class white women. Uh, which is not to say that we are the only ones that are affected by it. And especially uh, in the US, we know that COVID is more likely to affect minority our, our black and brown populations. Um, chances are they're experiencing long COVID just as much as I and my kind of demographic group. Um, we can't ignore that and, and let this long COVID further exacerbate existing structural disparities in access to healthcare and in health. Certainly, for sure. And I think, uh, you know, long COVID, it's been a long pandemic. Where do you, as someone that's followed the story and been involved uh, intimately since the beginning, where do you see us going with COVID, with SARS-CoV-2 here? Where, when is this all going to end? Is it going to end? Where are we going? I hate to be, be negative Nancy here, but uh, I, I don't think COVID is ever going to end. We are never going to get to a zero COVID state. Um my hope is, is that it will become something manageable, something that becomes part of the fabric of our practice as physicians and as communities, uh, more similar to flu or other common respiratory illnesses. To be super clear, COVID is not the flu and it is much worse than the flu, but through a combination of vaccinations, occasional masking, and some of these new treatments that Jim mentioned, I think we're gonna to get to a point where it's something that we don't want to see, but know how to deal with and can go back to a world that's a little bit closer to what we remember pre-March of 2020 than where we are today. Um, but, but folks who think that we're somehow gonna make it go away are, are sadly um, mistaken. Yeah, we have not had much luck eradic eradicating diseases as a species. We just aren't that good at that. And, you know, we pretty much celebrate that smallpox eradication. We like going back to that one. But I don't have a list that I can say, gosh, we won. We beat that one. Um, but let's let's just shift more towards a positive note as we approach the end of our time together. 2022 is nigh upon us here. Um, so what's a, what, what little health tip you can give anybody, if they want, or everybody, about staying healthy for 2022? What are your thoughts on that? You know, I just finished writing a piece right before we came on this podcast. Um, 
talking about kind of steps to take around Thanksgiving. And so I will say, as you're heading into the winter holidays, um, get your vaccine if you haven't already and get a rapid test before you go to family get-togethers to help reduce the spread of COVID, especially if you're with older or immunosuppressed family members. The other big thing to stay healthy is to make sure that you have those social connections. You know, we all separated from each other last year for really good reason. We did it to keep ourselves safe in the face of so much that was unknown, but now is different. Now is a moment where for many of us, it is okay to gather and to seek out and relish those social supports, those connections that make life worth living. There are ways to do it safely. And I I hope that folks take those ways. You know, isolation is not good for anyone. Um, And, and, you know, I'm I'm excited to help us all find ways to to get together um, again. I I will put in a plug. We have the My COVID Risk app, mycovidrisk.app, which we've developed through our Center for Digital Health that allows you to make real-time assessments of risk of COVID when you're getting together um, and then provide suggestions on ways to reduce risk. So I encourage people to look at that. Um, And then just, you know, take care of yourselves. The world is still the world. Still wear your seatbelt. Um, you know, still uh, wash God, your you, hands. Got to do the regular stuff, stuff besides, don't you? Yep. There's yeah. other stuff besides COVID out there. There really <laughs> is true. You know, it, it, it's not just a flu vaccine. There's more to it as well. You know, Dr. Rainey, you mentioned you were on Twitter. And as we close out, it occurs to me that some of our listeners may want to follow you on Twitter. Do you mind sharing your Twitter handle with us? I don't mind at all. It's quite easy. It's at... Megan Ranny. So my first name and then my last name, M-E-G-A-N-R-A, N as in Nancy, N as in Nancy, E-Y. So one of our traditions at Public Health Out Loud is the final word with Dr. Chan. Dr. Chan's always got a word of wisdom for us here. Dr. Chan, what's your final word for today? Thank you, Dr. McDonald. And thank you again, Dr. Rainey, for joining us. Always a pleasure. Uh, Thank you for your words of wisdom as well. So in closing, I just want to leave listeners with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your week. And here it is from Nelson Mandela. I never lose. I either win or learn. What a great attitude. Thank you all and be well. I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, medical director, Rhode Island Department of Health. Have a good and keep up the great.